We had a great day last Sunday, didn't we? Wasn't it great seeing those baptisms and watching people, you know, make firm their commitment with Christ and then go public uh, with their testimony that they're a follower of Jesus. Just great, great stuff. We're in a series, John, and we're actually finishing that up today. So we're in the last chapter, John chapter 21. And it's been a great study. The book of John is amazing. He's the last surviving disciple. He writes this book in his old age. He was not only with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry all the way through his death, resurrection, and appearances, but John was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, who, who sort of seemed to, to know Jesus best during his earthly ministry. And uh, he's an eyewitness to all of it. We, we started this series back at Christmas. And by the way, since then, we've seen 125 people indicate that they've come to Christ and 101 people <laughs> baptized that you just saw on that, uh, on that video. Those baptisms go pretty fast on the video and you're trying to squeeze in 101. So just great stuff. And uh, I couldn't be prouder of those who who got baptized last Sunday. So I want to pick it up in, in John chapter 21. Last week I mentioned uh, at this time, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples a couple times, and now he appears to them a third time. There's, there's 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, he appeared to them on the first day of his resurrection, but then a week later, actually the next Sunday, he appeared to them again. And so that still leaves uh, four, four or five weeks in there. We believe this was happening right in about in the middle of that. So that's a couple weeks since they've last seen Jesus and a couple of weeks before they return back to Jerusalem where they receive the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of where this fits in context. And here Jesus meets the disciples a, a third time, but he especially sort of deals with Peter. Because remember, just a few weeks ago, Peter had denied him, and not only that, but three times. So Jesus meets Peter, and Peter has a problem. Same problem, we all have sin. And, uh, and we're going to see how Jesus deals with this. First of all, he deals with the depth of Peter's problem, which is just like ours. He stoops down to Peter's brokenness and meets Peter where he is. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Now, this now is the third time that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. So if you'll remember, they were on the shore of Galilee. Jesus had instructed them to go there. They're waiting. They haven't seen him for a couple of weeks. Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. Six of the other ones join him to go fishing. And then somebody calls out in the, in the midst of the rising sun. You know, somebody calls out, do you have any fish? They say no. Cast on the right side. They do. They get a net full of fish. They're having a hard time getting in it. Peter John first realizes this is Jesus, tells Peter, Peter, 
grabs his outer garment, which is kind of odd for us, and throws himself into the water, probably ties it around his waist, throws himself in the water so when he gets out, he can put it on because he was stripped down for work. And then Jesus has a, a fire there, a charcoal fire, and has breakfast with them. But then this conversation happens. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the big question here that's debated is, what are the these? Do you love me more than these? There's three different ways scholars take this question. And it's all to do with what these is referring to. It could be that Jesus is asking him, do you love me more than these other disciples? Because you're with them, but you abandon me. So do you love me more than the disciples? It could be that Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these? Meaning, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Or it could be that he's saying, as they have the, he's just dragged the net and the fish and the boats on the shore. Do you love me more than these, boat, net, possibly fish, but more likely the boat and the net. And where he's saying, do you love me more than these? Do you love serving me more than going back to your old vocation? Because he was a fisherman. And so people debate about that. If it's, and I think, you know, most scholars come down that it's the second one that he's saying, which is kind of the hardest one for us. It's he's saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And the reason a lot of scholars think that's what he's saying is because all this goes back to the backstory of what happened with Peter. Because we're going to find out Jesus is restoring Peter, but well, what's the problem? Peter had denied Jesus. And if you'll remember that, the leading up to that, the disciples were in the upper room. We've already covered all this stuff. And Jesus said one of them was going to betray him. They don't know who. John is right sitting, leaning right next to Jesus. And Peter signals John, you know, ask him who. And so John asks who. Peter lets them know that it's Judas. Judas goes out, leaves, heads out to betray Christ. And they continue in their conversation. And then Peter, and basically Jesus is preparing them that he's going to be gone. They don't get this. Even though he kept saying he's going to die, he's going to die, and three days he'd be resurrected, they just couldn't compute that how the Messiah is going to die. It didn't make sense. Everybody just, they just greeted him into Jerusalem as Messiah King. How can this be happening? And then Peter tells Jesus, well, I will never abandon you. I will lay down my life for you. Kind of like, I don't know where these guys stand, but you can count on me. I will die for you. And that's kind of an implication like, hey, don't know where these jokers are, but I'm in the right spot here. And that, that's kind of the evidence for number two, do you love me more than these? Which seems like an odd question, but kind of fits in the context. And remember back then, that was back in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 38. Jesus answered him when he said that, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Remember, Jesus was, was killed then, and, and it was just hours. I mean, after his arrest, before he was killed, 
the hours after, Jesus, after Peter had said this to Jesus, maybe just like three or four hours that he's denied him three times. And so now Jesus comes to them, and there's another interesting twist on here, is he, Jesus is on the shore while they're out there. When they finally get to shore, Jesus has a charcoal fire, which would be what we would cook on, and he's got fish and bread already on there, says, hey, bring some, some of the fish you caught, and they have breakfast together. But charcoal fire is kind of a unique, it's only used twice in the Bible, this is one of them, and the only other time this is used in the Bible is guess when? When Peter denied Christ, they were warming themselves out in the courtyard of the high priest over a charcoal fire. So here Jesus is meeting Peter, and it's sort of like a little bit of deja vu for Peter. Charcoal fire, and all of a sudden now Jesus, this is where he denied Jesus three times, now Jesus is going to ask him three questions, um, three questions in a row. And, and we can all get, I mean, we can feel for Peter. Peter was a man of action and maybe a little more impulsive than some of the other disciples. And, and we could get, if, if you're caught off guard, even by a slave girl, that self-preservation kind of kicks in and, and maybe you deny that you know Jesus because you're around a mob that's getting ready to put him to death. But it was more than that for Peter. I mean, then he did it again. And then he did it a third time. Mark tells us the third time he called down curses. Kind of interesting to figure out who's he cursing there. Because it almost sounds like he's cursing Jesus. You know, and, and so he has hit bottom. And, you know, he hears the rooster crow. He goes back. He's broken. He knows there's no excuse. He's completely broken. And, and here Jesus is sort of opening up this wound. And I think a lot of people are like, wow, this, this is tough stuff. I mean, he, but Jesus is asking this question rather than just ignore Peter's sin. He's dealing with it. I don't know about you, but if you've ever done something really bad or something you knew God didn't want you to do in your past... And sometimes just thinking back on that is uncomfortable, even painful. Is that true of anybody? Just thinking about what you did or how you reacted is painful. It's so wrong. And no doubt this is what Peter is kind of dealing with. But here's the deal. It's, it's painful to think about, but we cannot downplay or ignore our sin. And so if sin can't be downplayed or ignored... Well, what's next? Well, I think this is what Jesus is doing. Sometimes we used to call this, you know, this is surgery, the surgery that's needed for Peter's problem. He's denied Christ. Now Jesus is going to sort of dig into that a little bit. He keeps pressing Peter, although even bringing this up seems to be agonizing for Peter. Jesus is acknowledging the depth of Peter's sin, just like he acknowledges the depth of our sin. And he's making Peter kind of painfully retrace his steps. And if you ever hear people talk about cheap grace, sometimes people use that. They'll, they'll look at, sometimes they'll look at larger churches and say, yeah, cheap grace. It's, it's like sin. You don't talk about sin. No, Jesus talked about sin. We talk about sin. Cheap grace is saying sin is no big deal. Scripture's saying 
Sin is the biggest deal we have. It's a problem for all of us. And cheap grace doesn't change lives. Cheap grace downplays sin. You know, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, Peter, I love you, don't worry about it, and let's just skip over that, brush it under the rug, not think about it. He wants Peter to fully acknowledge the depths of his sin. It seems like Peter's at that place, and that sin's not okay, and that sin's so not okay that Jesus had to die on the cross to pay for the right penalty for our sin personally. And the fact is, you'll never, ever be awed by God's love until you understand the depth of your own sin. And you come to terms with that. So Jesus continues in the next verse, verse 16. Jesus keeps talking. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Then Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And there's some words that get it, that in the English we can see are different here. And that is, for example, shepherd or tend. They're sort of synonymous, but also lambs and sheep. They're, they're synonym, basically synonymous in here. It's just the style of, of John sort of changing it up a little bit. But we also know that in Greek there are different words for love. Most of you know that. There are several different words for love. And John's writing in Greek, although this was originally spoken in Aramaic, so it could be a little confusing. And uh, with these several words for love, there's two different words for love that are used in this exchange between Jesus and Peter that we don't see in English because we're just, we translate both with the word love. And, and, there's a, you know, and it's probably better that there's more words for love, right? Because we say, in our culture, we say, Man, I love ice cream. And man, I love my wife. Okay, well, we're hoping that you love your wife. Ah, wife, ice cream. Yeah, ah. You know, that you love your wife more than ice cream. But we use the same word. And, and so in Greek, they don't do that. They have, actually have more than five words for love. But anyway, so, but there's two words for love. And the two words that are used here one is the Greek word phileo, and that's kind of where we get Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Phileo is a brotherly love. And then there's agape that was kind of more rare before the New Testament was written, but there's a lot of agape in the New Testament, which is a self-sacrificing or more of a supreme love. And both of these words are used. It's just that in English, they're both translated love. So let me kind of tell you how it reads with that in mind. Are you ready? All right. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me supremely? Do you love me agape? And, P and interestingly, Peter says, you know I love you like a brother. You know I love you, phileo. Jesus says again, do you love me agape? Do you love me 
self-sacrificially. Do you love me supremely? And Peter says again, you know I love you, phileo, like a brother. Interesting. Do you love me supremely? I love, you know I love you like a brother. Do you love me supremely? You know I love you like a brother. And then the third time, Jesus changes his word. Do you love me like a brother? And Peter's grieved and says, you know everything. You know that I love you like a brother. So as you put all this, and what seems to be happening now, because this is Peter saying, I will die for you. That's self-sacrificial love before. But it's like Peter's been humbled. And now, in his humility, he cannot say that he loves Jesus supremely. He just denied Jesus three times. And so, he notches it down. You know I love you, phileo, like a brother. And why is Jesus repeating this? Finally, Jesus comes down to his level and says, okay, do you love me like a brother? Yeah, I love you like a brother. He meets him where he's at. And this seems kind of brutal. Jesus is doing surgery. Why is he repeating this? Because he's calling Peter to something beyond sorrow. He's calling him to repentance. Some people read this and it's like, man, you're, it's, it's like you're stabbing. It's like, you know, we don't like to think of Jesus stabbing anybody, but metaphorically, Jesus is like stabbing him. And then he keeps asking, it's like he's twisting the knife. But Jesus is using that knife like a surgeon to heal Peter. Jesus is having this conversation to heal and restore Peter. I remember uh, when I was a kid, the first fight I ever got in at school, um, I unintentionally offended a- another kid. And I say unintentionally because nobody would have intentionally offended this kid. But anyway, I unintentionally offended this kid, and he threw me like a rag doll into a broken chain link fence. And there was a barb on that fence that cut right at the top of my eyelid, below my eyebrow, and that produced enough blood gushing out of my head that thankfully he stopped beating me. And uh, I went over to a, a uh, teacher that was out there that didn't see any of that. And by then blood covered my face, they take me to the ER, I'm in there and the doctor's like, well, I'm gonna have to give you stitches. And I'm like, Stitch, stitches on my eyeball? You know, I'm like, I'll take the beating. You know, just let me go back. I'd rather be beaten than have a needle by my eyeball. And he, he gets me on the table and, and I'm, you know, how old am I? Eight, you know, I don't know. And he lays me down there and, he's, and he pulls out the needle. You know, I'm like, no way. You know, can't this heal? Butterfly bandage, you know, what do you got? You know, let's, super glue. Yeah, I guess they didn't do that then. But you know, I'm looking for any alternative. And he goes, hold still. And then here comes the needle. I mean, he's doing the needle. I'm just looking at things. And here's what I'm thinking. Hold still. That's not enough. You can't just say hold still. What if I sneeze? What if I cough? There will be a needle going into my eyeball. I'm just a kid. You can't just tell a kid, a little kid, hold still, and his eyeball's at the, you know, that's what I'm thinking. I'm laying there thinking that. What if somebody bumps the table? What if he has a problem? You know, what if he sneezes? What if he coughs? You know, I'm sitting there all that time, but he gets stitched up and I'm all right. Hold still. Didn't seem like enough. And when Jesus does surgery on our hearts, it's like he's saying, hold still. 
Because sometimes we feel the pain of how we've offended God and let God down and sinned against him. It's so deep and so painful we want to run from God. Or we either want to run from him or we want to downplay it and convince ourselves it's not that bad. Yeah, everybody does that. Yeah, you know, or God knew I was going to do that. You know, God knows everything. Or, you know, and the, you know, the circumstances, if they were a little different, we either downplay our sin or the pain of it, the pain of the full weight of our sin, if we don't downplay it, often causes us to run, hide from God. And it's like God's telling us, hold still. Let me deal with the full weight of this sin. And he's wanting repentance. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus asked the question three times. It's surgery and it restores Peter to ministry. Restores him to leadership. These, these disciples, they're, they're leaders. Doesn't restore him to being a pope. He was never a pope. He doesn't have authority over the other disciples like John. There's a whole bunch of biblical evidence against that if you're confused about that. But Jesus does, does use Peter to preach the first sermon after Pentecost and see thousands of people come to Christ in one day. And so when Peter or us, if, when we have a sin problem and then we come to him with the full weight of that and we hold still and sort of own it, man up, take it well Jesus forgives us and then know that, that God has a plan so God has a plan for Peter and God has a plan for each of us he actually gets to God's plan of Peter next so after that exchange in verse 18 Jesus says this he turns to Peter. At this point, maybe they've gotten up from breakfast around the fire. Maybe they're kind of taking a, a little bit of a walk. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when, he had, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So here Jesus restores him, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, you know, follow me. And then Jesus predicts the kind of death that Peter is going to face. Remember, this is all in the context of the backstory. Peter said, I'll die for you. That's actually going to turn out to be true. Because this metaphor, stretch out your hands, this is a metaphor for crucifixion. So Jesus is telling him, hey, you kind of do, when you were young, you did whatever you wanted. When you get older, you're going to go where you don't want to go. They're going to stretch out your hands. And Peter would have known He's talking about crucifixion. But when he's older, you know, so doesn't know when, not now. And as a matter of fact, we know Peter was crucified by Nero in 64 AD. John outlives 
Peter by like 30 years. John's still around when Peter dies. Peter was restored, and, and he understands he's going to be killed serving Jesus. And I think at that point, that would be a comfort to Peter because he, he caved. And then he, it's like he knows, oh, then I won't chicken out. Then I won't deny Christ. I'll die well. I'll die like a man. And as I age, you know, I've given thought about ending well, dying well. You know, and there's got to be something comforting in knowing that you will die well. This is what Peter knew. Even though the method of your death is torturous. Oh, but it's, you know, I'm going to be tortured, but I'm going to die well. And so when Peter has this discussion with Jesus, and they're sort of walking, and he's talking about his death, and it's sort of gruesome. Crucifixion was horrific. Then Peter notices John, who's never far from Jesus, is, is following along. And then he turns, and he basically, Peter's curiosity kind of gets the best of him. And he asks about John's death. And, and here we see a little bit about God's plan for John, verse 20. Peter, turning, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Sort of a kind of rough. He's just like, hey, it's none of your business. You do you. Verse 23, therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he wouldn't die, but only if, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? So he says this. Peter says, hey, don't worry about John. You worry about yourself. If I want John to be here when I come back, what's that to you? And then John, because he's writing this years later, is saying, you know, because Jesus said that and I'm outliving the other disciples, a lot, there's rumors going around among the brethren saying, oh, Jesus is going to come back before John dies. And John's like, hey, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, hey, if I wanted him to remain until I came back, what is, what's it to you? You do you, you know, is what he said. And John sets the record straight. And if God had a plan for Peter, and God had a plan for John. John lives a lot longer. All the other 11 remaining disciples are martyred for their faith except for one. You know, tradition has it that they actually were sentenced to death by boiling, but whatever, for whatever reason, he did not die. And rather to sentence him to death again, which seems odd, uh, they just had him exiled the island of Patmos. And that's, you know, where he wrote books. Remember, John wrote John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. God's plan for John. And then he, he kind of wraps this up. And as we, he does, we need to think about this for us. Next verse, verse 24. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. 
And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were not written, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Which is kind of interesting. I mean, this is how he ends. He ends really with humility. He ends telling us we don't have unlimited knowledge. He ends telling us, hey, we should be humble in the knowledge that we have. We don't know everything. John's telling us, well, I'm not including everything. I'm just including the things that I think you know. And actually in the chapter before, he told us why he included the things that he did in John 20, 31. At the end of that chapter, he said, but these things... These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And John ends on this note of humility to remind all of us to know that we only have partial knowledge of God. Enough to know who God is, enough to know who we really are, enough to come to him in repentance, enough to receive salvation through faith or belief, trust in Christ. And the question is, do you believe like John's talking about? Do you believe? Because that's the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. And that's the decision that, that John is driving through, through all 21 chapters of his gospel. Jesus is the Son of God who came to fix our problem, to die for our sins, to save us from the right and just penalty that we owe to God for our sin. He saves us from that penalty by taking the penalty on himself, but the only way that that works on our behalf is if we come to him on his terms, and that is only through faith or belief. Or the way maybe we could better say it today is that we would put our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation, not thinking that we're bringing anything to the table because if we think we're bringing anything or that we're easier to save than somebody else, then we don't understand the depth of our sin. We're not facing it squarely. We're not owning up to it. We're downplaying it. And God invites us to come to give our lives to him and when we do he has a plan for our lives it's different for everybody for Peter it's die a martyr's death for John it's live a long life it does not matter because we will be with God in eternity if we would simply humble ourselves and call out to him for salvation based on what Christ has done for us. The most important decision. And so as we go through the book of John, and now we're ending it, please don't miss that. Let's stand and pray together. Father God in heaven, God, we thank you
You created us. You gave us life. You gave us the ability to think. Lord, you've brought us here that we can talk about you and freedom. And Father, we as a church family, we are praying that if there's any in this room right now, and statistically there is, Father, if there's any in this room right now, we ask that you would help them to see your love for them, your provision, that they would turn their hearts to you. And Father, for the rest of us who've already done that, already acknowledged the seriousness and the depth of our sin and come to you in faith, Father, help us to live out your plan for our lives and impact people for you, to bring you glory. Whether that's our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors, our co-workers, whoever it is, you've put us here for a reason. We are part of your plan. And God, we thank you even for that. In Christ's name, amen.